They may be called the next generation, but they're the church of today. Reach, disciple, and mobilize students to share the hope of the gospel. This is Next Gen On Mission with Shane Pruitt. Hi friends, Shane Pruitt here. My prayer is that this conversation between Dahati Lewis and I on the next generation and racial reconciliation will be a blessing and encouragement and a challenge in a good way to all of us. Because we as the church must grow in our effectiveness and lead the way in racial reconciliation. We also want you to know that this conversation was recorded prior to the tragic death of George Floyd. Um, that's why his name is not mentioned in our conversation. We know this is a timely and extremely important and urgent conversation. So now over to the dialogue that Dahadi and I had on the next generation and racial reconciliation. Welcome to another episode of Next Gen on Mission, the podcast. We are so excited that you're hanging out with us again today, and I am extremely excited about our guest, Dahadi Lewis. Dahadi Lewis is the lead pastor of Blueprint Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and the vice president of Sin Network with the North American Mission Board. He is an author, a podcaster, husband, father, follower of Jesus, and the list goes on and on and on. God uses this man in incredible ways. So I'm so excited to talk to him today about a very relevant and timely topic which is the next generation and racial reconciliation. Dahadi Lewis, welcome to the Next Gen on Mission podcast. What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing good to be on the show. Yeah, doing well. You know, at the time of this recording, we're, we're still kind of in the shelter-in-place phase of this pandemic known as COVID-19. And you have six kids, I have five kids. So we were just kind of sharing some, some war stories through this time, wouldn't we? <laughs> Oh yes, this, this COVID nineteen pandemic has brought new levels of of patience, and depending on the fruit of the spirit, depending on the spirit to bring out its his fruit in so many different ways. I mean, having six children, all of them in the preteen and teenage teenage years, it's you know, and all being quarantined and locked in in a, in a home, it can definitely test you. <laughs> it's a constant prayer request, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Awesome. Well, Dahadi, before we get too spiritual, hey, tell us one fun fact about you that we may not know that we do need to know about Dahadi Lewis. Well, some of you guys, um, I mean, I, I don't think many people know at all, but um, especially if you're not close to me, is that I'm a gamer. And, and the really thing is, I don't even know if I can truly say a gamer, but I play video games. I used to couldn't call myself a gamer, but now I play video games. Like, you know, you get me on NBA 2K, I'm, I, I play Xbox, and NBA 2K, you can find me at on the park, you can find me in my career, you can find me in any of those, and I'm, I love playing, playing that, and, and I think I can go with the best of them when it comes to, you know, specifically that, and the reason why I don't say gamer anymore is because I specifically can only play like one game, and usually because I don't have a time to venture out into all the games, so right now my... My game of choice is NBA 2K. I get every every year. It's like an annual event for me. Love it. That's awesome. All right, so NBA fan. I'm a huge NBA fan. Favorite team right now. What's your favorite team? 
Oh, right now, before, I think it was before I was born, and now, and even after I die, we'll be the Los Angeles Lakers. Oh, Is there any Lakers. other team outside <laughs> of that? You know, but, you know, I'm born, I'm born in L.A. You know, I grew up in, yep. the, in the magic era, the showtime, you know, all the way through the, through the down, the down years, you know, to the up years. Kobe, Shaq, the, even the Nick Van Axel. You Nick know, those years, I am a diehard, I'm a diehard Laker fan. Love it. Hey, and I'm a huge Mavericks fan, so Luca all the I'm way. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, but hey, we had some I Nick do. Van Exel in Dallas for a little bit. He he had a little stint with hey, us. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. But I I agree with the Dallas fan. Yes. So I, you know, it's, it's been it's a rough stretch for you. Yeah, we had one. We had that one year. It was even the shortened NBA season, but we still take that championship. <laughs> yeah, I remember that year. You guys shot like eighty percent from like a three point line in that series. <laughs> Dirk was insane for sure. <laughs> hey, well, yeah. the hottie, man, I'm so excited about this this conversation. Um, you know, I am a father of a multiracial family, and uh, in in the church, so needed. I think the church should be at the forefront of this conversation. Let me ask you this. Before we get into the racial reconciliation side, let's talk about next generation. And I always love to ask this question to kick off the podcast. And it's so fun to hear the different responses from leaders. What do we need to know about the next generation? Well, I think the next generation is really, uh, I think, a a promising generation in so many different ways. Because the next generation, they are very intentional when it comes to like like issues of justice, issues of right and wrong and seeing and, and desiring to, to bring about what is right, you know, and I just think that that is a great quality. Um, that the next generation can be, however, be a lot more demanding. Like when they see issues of justice, they want to see a change and they want to see a change like yesterday. So they're not really as patient. And I think there's a lot of um, profits in the next, in this next generation. Like they really want to come out and they just want to, they want to see truth. They want to see um, dignity, the Imago Day, you know, and I think where there's not as much patience. And so I think it's, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. You know, and, and I agree with you 100%. You know, one thing I always say is the next generation is extremely pro-life. Um, it's going to be fun to see when Generation Z becomes adults and influencers what they're going to do uh, with, say, abortion issues. But when they say pro-life, they're talking more than just abortion. I mean, they mean f- literally from the womb to the tomb. And so they care deeply about pro-life issues and social justice. And you're right. Um, there's a lot of angst there, but probably in a, in a good way. You know, um, Let me ask you this. Hey, what are some... What are some barriers that you still see with the next generation in, in the conversation of racial reconciliation? I think this next generation, um, if we're not careful, and like the, the idea of anxiety is going up. You know, mm-hmm. I think you know, the inability to process emotions and to, to you know, delayed gratification and the angst and the anxiety of that, the fear and dealing with the fear, a lot of times because of the lessening of human interaction, you know, oftentimes the, in the, the, the heightening of, you know, Twitter and everything being exposed and, you know, and you and your shame and your humility and your humanity being exposed and caring about how many Twitter followers and how many, you know, Instagram or can I pay, do this TikTok or whatever it is it may be. I think it's real easy for them to, to grow anxious about things if, if they're not successful 
you know, mm-hmm. or in you know, however they define success or not. So I'm concerned about that, the anxiety of this next generation and us not being emotionally healthy to to sustain the pressure and the weight that social media and all these other things, you know, have on us to perform. Yeah, I agree, my friend, 100%. In fact, I, I believe part of our discipleship process with the next generation, and maybe all ages, has to be emotional health now because it's just a topic that continues to go and go and go is depression and anxiety um, and just constant fear and worry. Dottie, yeah, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, where, where do you think the church is currently succeeding in racial reconciliation, is the church growing? Is the church getting better um, in the topic of, of racial reconciliation? Where's the church succeeding right now? Well, I mean, it's always, I mean, that's such a relative and subjective kind of, you know, I, 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 it's a question that it's, it's only coming from like a very anecdotal, subjective vantage point. The fact that we have now more racially integrated churches than we had 10 years ago says that, yes, we, we have to say that we are growing. Right. You know, in the in this area, the fact that you see more people, you know, with issues like Ahmaud Arbery mm-hmm. and you see, you know, issues of, of racial tension and all that growing, you know, and awareness and more not just minorities, but Anglo and, you know, the body of Christ are more aware of it. I think that's good. I mean, even when you're seeing people speak out and churches speaking out about some of the Asian you know, um, prejudice and racism that was going out during the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic in the midst of all of this. And so, so I definitely think that there's more aware. Now, are we at the place? Because there's still just as much um, division, just as much um, things. It's just sort of like, uh, it's so easy for us to divide. And race has been just one of those catalysts that has been it's been something that we've had faced since the birth of America and that we will still continue. So we still have a long, long, long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And so in light of that, what are some, uh, give an example or two of where the church still, still currently has huge blind spots when it comes to racial reconciliation? Well, I mean, when it comes to racial reconciliation, the church still has some blind spots because as we have more churches that are diverse, we still have so many churches, and I still think it rings true that Martin Luther King Jr. said is that 11 o'clock hour is still one of the most divided hours of our week. You know, that our churches are still homogeneous, you know, and they're homo- like I would be okay with homogeneous churches in homogeneous neighborhoods, but I'm, yeah. what I'm not okay with is homogeneous churches in multi-ethnic, multicultural, mm-hmm. multi-generational um, areas, and so... You know, and we just have to really get over the Saddleback Sam model of the way we do church and trying to grow a church quick and fast where we just kind of find one type of person and build everything around that type of person's likings and everything. And we need to think more broadly. And, you know, and so oftentimes I tell people we need to move from an ethnic missiology to a neighbor missiology. And we need Mm -hmm. to ask the question, how do I reach my neighbor? And I think the urbanization of North America of density and diversity, where people no longer look like us, talk like us, and act like us, are now our neighbors, are, I think, is a blessing, but we got to take the step to reaching our neighbors. Yeah, completely. And, man, that's, yeah, and that's such a, a great segue into this next question, because I think this is the number one question that is often asked, you know, for the church or the next-gen ministry, or maybe even the college ministry or the student ministry that is made up of predominantly one race or culture, but they live in a diverse neighborhood, city, um, area. 
what are some practical next steps to becoming a church or ministry that looks more like heaven? So they're predominantly one race, one culture. So what are some steps that they can take to look more like heaven and reach their community? Yeah, I think one of the first things that you need to do is just look up. You know, I mean, one of the things that Jesus did, and I think it was a masterful thing in Matthew chapter 9, you know, he kind of looked at his disciples as he was going from city to city, village to village, you know, healing the sick and and the lame. He was healing. He saw that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And then he caused his disciples to basically look to see, like the harvest is plentiful. And once you see the harvest, and you see that the harvest doesn't always have to look like you or talk like you and act like you. So whether you're on a college campus or whether you're at your high school or middle school or regardless of where you're at or if you're looking just in your neighborhood, that when you look up and if you take a good time to look, you would see that the, that the harvest truly is plentiful. And a lot of and oftentimes that harvest don't look like you. Mm-hmm. They don't act like you. And so we just have the ability to just first just look up and just to see and to ask God to break your heart over the things that their hearts mm. are breaking over. You know, and I think that that is, is that's a critical, because that's the first thing that Jesus says. He says, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more laborers. And, you know, in context, that verse is talking about, like, sheep without shepherds. So shepherds, shepherds have a compassion and an empathy for their sheep. You know, it's different than a hired hand. And I think not only do we have to see them, we got to pray that the Lord would give us a shepherd's heart for those people that are, you know, sheep without shepherds, that are harassed, that they're helpless, the people that are that are without, uh, you know, a sovereign king. And I think that that's so critical for us is that we would first see and then that we would pray that God would give us a heart, you know, and a compassion for them. Gosh, so good. I agree with you, Pastor. Let me ask you this. You know, often you hear this shared as maybe some practical advice of if you want a diverse church, a diverse congregation, then you need a, uh, to have a diverse leadership. Uh, the stage that is in front of people needs to to be diverse. Uh, do you agree with that, that to, to have a diverse church, you need diverse leadership and diverse presence on the stage? I mean, I think it's always helpful if it's not just pure, you know, tokenism. Yep. Yep. You know, because I think that sometimes you can just try to give tokenism and just yeah. try to create, and then you'll get the Hispanic guy or a black guy or some, you know, a guy to try to reach. I think it's, it's, I think I caution leaders oftentimes against that because two things may happen. Oftentimes when we do that, what we what we do is that we either put him on like a worship leader or a worshiping. One, African-Americans have been entertaining whites for years. Mm. So that's not going to bring diversity just because you get... Um, black music, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, so and the other thing is that I just think that you just have to be able to recognize that sometimes whenever you hire minorities, you let's just say, hey, my, my neighborhood is turning Hispanic, yep. and so I need to hire Hispanics, you know, but it's sort of like to reach the Hispanics. And it's just like we inadvertently say, hey, we are, we need you to reach the Hispanics. I'll take care of the white people, in a mm-hmm. sense, right? And it's kind of like it produces mm-hmm kind of this it, the inferiority complex. So I just say that we just got to be careful, you know, when we are just simply diversifying the stage. Because if we're going to diversify the stage, we need to diversify the church, yeah. like the non-areas in the church to to address kind of the, the systemic things that are going around. And so we just got to be careful with that. But that's the thing that I would say is that in order to get diversity, you don't have to diversify your stage. You got to diversify your heart. You got to diversify your relationships. 
right? I, I said earlier that 11 o'clock hour is the most divert, I mean, the most segregated hour. But really, you know, and it's been said, and I just fully agree, that really is the 6 o'clock hour that's the most segregated hour. And that's the hour that people are eating dinner, mm, right? Wow. We don't have true and genuine relationships in our dinner table. So if we <laughs> want to so diversify good. our church, we've got to diversify our dinner table. Oh, man. So true. That's so good. Now, Hadi, I can't help but think about, you know, whenever I was, uh, you know, serving uh, on the state convention level and we had began this talk, um, especially in, in Dallas after uh, some police officers were shot in that tragic event several years ago. And we started getting around the conversation of bringing leaders together that look different. And that's what we said is said, hey, why don't we organically do this? Why don't, you know, uh, you as a pastor bring a close pastor friend that doesn't look like you to the table? And how many pastors even paused and go, man, I don't have a close friend that doesn't look like me. That's also a leader. And I think that was very telling. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. One of the things I often talk about is that a problem is not a real problem until it's your problem. Mm. And something only becomes your problem through one or two ways. One is through proximity and the other through is relationship. And if we are not living around people who don't look like us, talk like us, and act like us, their problems won't be real problems. And if we're not in genuine relationships with people on a heart level, their problems won't be our problems. And this is why we oftentimes are like two ships passing in the night is because we're not, we don't live around each other and we're not in proximity with one another when it comes to the church. You know, and so I just think that we have to address those issues if we're going to like bear, grieve with those who grieve and, you know, celebrate with those who celebrate and rejoice with those who rejoice. It's not going to happen unless we uh, first lay the foundation of having intimate relationships with one another. Yeah, so good. I, I agree with that. And one, of, I feel like one of God's pictures of grace and gifts to me are my close, dear friends. Uh, that don't look like me because I, gosh, I can say, help me see this, you know, help me not see this as a white male. Help me see this through a different lens. And it's just been so educational. It's revealed to me. I'll just be honest, Dahadi, my own ignorance, my own blind spots. And so God, I just think, God, what a picture of God's grace in my own life to have friends around me that don't look like me to help me see a world differently than I did on my own, you know? But you know what's even the more blessing with what you said is the fact that you have friends and you, with your friends, are given space to give grace, mm. you know, in order mm. to offend one another and to step yeah. on one of the toes and not always have the right answer. And I think that in our friendships, not only do we need to diversify our friendships, we got to give our friendships grace and give them safe places to mess up and to stumble and to do those things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, and and let, let give me. A, I'll give you an example of that. A, a dear close friend of mine who is a pastor, um, uh, who is uh, my age, African American. And I remember, you know, especially when the Black Lives Matter uh, movement was really on the scene, and then you know there was a response for the Church of All Lives Matter. Um, and and I'll I'll never forget saying that. And he goes, Shane, yes, of course we believe all lives matter, but there's there's a, a a people who are hurting deeply. And he goes, it'd be the same like if I have a broken rib, and I'm hurting with a broken rib. And you said, hey Caleb, all your bones matter. And he's like, yeah, I know that, but my rib is broken. My rib is hurting right now. That's what needs the attention. And that was just so eye opening to me. And I don't think I would have ever stopped and considered that if I didn't have that grace and friendship in my life to help me see things differently, you know? Amen. 
Amen. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Hadi, let me ask you this. So, you know, you mentioned Ahmad a while ago, uh, Arbarian, and just, gosh, what a, a gut-wrenching, tragic story. And, and I've had so many just friends in my life to say, hey, you know, I understand that sometimes we stay silent because we don't want to say the wrong thing or we don't want to get into controversial issues. You know, we want to stay in our lanes. But I've had so many friends say that sometimes as leaders, as pastors, uh, as Christian leaders, that our silence screams loudly. So, Dahadi, help us understand when are times to be silent and when are times to scream? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that's a, you know, we got to recognize that when we talk about sin, sin is kind of comes into the forms of multiple different ways. One, there's active, you know, sin with a high hand, active disobedience, but then there's also passive disobedience that we see. If you just look through and scroll through Romans chapter 1, you know, 18 through chapter 310, where it's kind of like this summary that oftentimes we look at as evangelicals, and it comes to that conclusion in 310, where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, right? In there, <laughs> in there, what what we recognize is that in chapter one, verses at the end of, of chapter one, it talks about this idea in verse 32. It says, although that they knew God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. You know, one of the things that it talked about this, you know, in there is just the idea of the silence that oftentimes that yeah. we, we have. Like when we're not, when we, we don't act out on what we know is truth is just as bad as being explicitly involved, right? Mm-hmm. We see that in all different types of laws, you know, like you can't simply watch and be a bystander and just plead, you know, oh, I don't. I didn't want, I didn't know what to do, so I didn't do anything. But oftentimes we allow just the fear of what people are think or doing it wrong or whatever to silence us to not do anything. And I just think that, you know, as as believers, like we just have to be more dependent on the Holy Spirit and pray that God would give us the courage to overcome that. And just to say, even if sometimes we say the wrong things, you know, because the bottom line is, is that it's, I think it's more of an offense to, to remain, you know, complicit in something with your silence than to speak out, even if you're speaking out wrongly. I'd rather you speak out or speak out wrongly than to not speak out at all. Uh, yeah, I agree 100%. I agree with that 100%. Dahadi Lewis, if you have a time machine and you can go visit your teenage self, what would you tell the teenager Dahadi Lewis? You know what's interesting about that is a lot of times my my teenage years, you know, I, I would really just tell me just to like live in the moment. Like there's so often times that I've tried to live in the, you know, the next generation, the next you know, like I can't wait till I'm twenty, yeah. I'm twenty five, I'm you know, you know, I remember growing up for us, it was like, Man, in year two thousand I thought we would have like floating cars by the <laughs> but you know, we don't because you know, you believe all the back to the future days. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting for my hoverboard. I'm still waiting for my hoverboard. Like time yeah. machines and hoverboards <laughs> yeah. and all these things like like it's not like we're I think we're behind the times. We're not yeah. we just, we're not as far as our imagination thought we would be at that time. That's right. But I would just say this, live in the moment. Like, it's, you know, I remember that it's that Robin Williams just kind of sees the day, mm-hmm. you know, kind of 
mindset is just seize the day, live for today, you know, and, and I think that this is the day that the Lord has given us. I will rejoice and be glad in it and just be thankful for every day that God has given us. And especially, you know, in the midst of these COVID-19 days, it's like every day is a different day. We don't, none of us know how long it's going to be. It's going to, you know, it's all coming in stages and all we can do is just seize the day. Not just kind of live in, I can't wait to be on the other side of COVID-19. No, this is the day that the Lord has given me. How can I take today and to maximize it? So I would just tell both my teenage self and I also just got to tell my 40-year-old self the same thing because I still struggle. Yeah, yeah, same. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's such a true thing. We're, we always, I think we always miss what God has for us today because we're looking forward to whatever that next stage in our life is or whatever we assume it is. That's such a good word. Well, my friend, this has been so good. Listen, we always close uh, the podcast with this same on-mission charge. The heart behind this podcast is to see the next generation realize they are the now generation, not just the future of the church, but also the church right now, that they have a calling on their life now, the Great Commission on their life now, to be the church right now. So would you give us one closing thought on this? Yeah, I mean, this what you think, that you are the now generation. And I just want to encourage you. Um, Paul, oftentimes, really was encouraging his people in that way, that, like, that he would, as he was walking around with the young Timothys, the young Tituses, you know, of the day, that he would encourage them. And in 1 Timothy 4.12, it obviously is a famous verse, but it says, don't let anyone despise you or look down on you because of your youth, but be an example for believers in speech and in conduct and in faith and in purity today. You know, he also says in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, he says, blossom, basically, blossom where you are planted. You know, don't, again, just like I just said, my, I would tell my teenage self, don't wait for what you can be, be that, become that today, you know, and allow God to use you today to be, uh, you know, to be a conduit of his grace wherever you are. And so that's what we might encourage. You are the generation of now. Such a good word. Dahadi, this has been so good. I could talk about this stuff with you for the rest of the day. I, we're going to have to have you on again so we can deal in, drill deeper. And I had more questions I didn't even get to ask you. This has just been so good, so rich, so helpful. I pray that it's been a help to all those that are listening. Dahadi, where can people find you online and follow you online? You know, social media or watch your, yeah. watch your sermons online. Where can people find you online? Well, you can go, always go to blueprintchurch.org. You also can look. Um, we do a, I do a daily podcast. Um, we have a We Are Sin Network podcast that I do for church planners and church leaders, uh, planning couples, you know, with the Sin Network. And, um, you know, follow me on, you know, Twitter. Is this at Dahadi, Lewis for Facebook and Instagram. So, yeah, all of those. And, you know, just love to join in the conversation. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, my friend. And all of our friends that are listening, thank you so much for listening to the Next Gen Mission podcast. If you have any questions on reaching the next generation, please email us at evangelism at nam.net, and we'll try to address those on a future podcast. We pray you have a great rest of your day, and tell somebody about Jesus.